Good morning, everyone. What a gift to worship with you. For those of you who are watching online, whether you're joining us from YouTube or uh, newlife.nyc or Facebook, uh, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Fellowship Church, and uh, it is a gift to worship with you. Uh, Before I get into our our message today, I wanted to uh, have our next-gen pastor come on the stage. Matt is back from sabbatical, and so just give it up for Pastor Matt as he shares just a quick update on the last few months away. So, Pastor Matt, take it away. It's good to be back. You know, I I have a lot to say, so I have to, I got to take it easy, otherwise you'll be hearing from me a lot more than him, but uh, um, I'm just so grateful to God for the opportunity to have some time to rest, to be restored, to really have time to bond with my family. I mean, there's nothing better than being home for three months with a toddler. Uh, so shout out to all the people who do that every day, all year long. I see you now <laughs> in a way unlike ever before. But I'm just I'm grateful to our community as a church for allowing us as pastors to have this time to just go someplace else, really deeply connect with God, to be refreshed. And I've got a ton of ideas, a ton of stuff I want to see in the future But for right now, I'm just grateful to be back with our community again, worshiping together, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of you in the lobby as you walk out. And so, let's get to work. Amen? All right. Good to see everybody. Thanks, Matt. So so Matt will be in the lobby area uh, after the service. Make sure uh, you say hello to him before you head out of the building. We are in a series focusing on Jesus' words, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So far, we have touched on three uh, of the churches, and we are looking at uh, church number four today. Or rather, we've touched on two of the churches. They were touching on uh, church number three, the church at Pergamum. And uh, as I've been reading through Jesus' words, I have a confession to make. Uh, I have been reading the first two uh, messages he gave to the churches, and I was like, wow, this is great. We need to hear this. And then as I've been reading the other letters that Jesus has to the church, I've realized this is some heavy stuff that Jesus is speaking to the churches. And today's going to be heavy. Uh, Next week, I'm not sure if I should announce it like that. Next week is going to be even heavier. And so I was tempted to say, I'm going to call out sick next week and just say, have have somebody else preach. Let's talk about joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But I think it's really important that we listen not just to the Jesus in the Gospels, but to the Jesus in the book of Revelation as well. And we want to hold on uh, to the various words that Jesus speaks. And so today we're looking at the words Jesus has to the church at Pergamum. And so you can follow on the screen. You can follow in your Bible. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, So the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against them. With the sword of my mouth, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence and for your holy word. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us your ways, uh, for you are righteous and just. Lord, would you plant your word in our hearts, water it from the streams of your ever-flowing mercy, that it may bloom and produce in us fruit that is a blessing and pleasing in your sight. And so we offer this time to you. It's in Christ's name we pray, and everyone said... 
Amen. On Friday night, I got a voice message from a friend of mine who let me know that he was watching the baseball game at Yankee Stadium. And as he was watching the baseball game at Yankee Stadium, he saw someone who said, looked like my twin, looked like my twin, a good-looking guy who would just uh, look like my twin. And so he said, Rich, I thought I saw you at Yankee Stadium. I could have sworn it was you. And then I got closer to the person and saw the guy wearing a Yankees jersey and realized that's definitely uh, not Rich. Now, in the voicemail on my phone, he began to tell me this story and then began to pray for me that the Lord would change my heart one day and make me into a Yankee fan. He said, Lord, I know you can do the miraculous and all this on my phone. And I pray right now that you help my brother see the light and all that. And so I got off the thing and, and, and responded, ha, to him on my text response and, and basically said, that'll never happen. That'll never happen because I bleed blue and orange. I'm a Mets fan. I will never, I'll never renounce my team. And so as I thought about that uh, voice message, I thought about an article that I had read on ESPN a number of years ago with this very important question that the, uh, that the columnist responded to, and it said this, when is it okay to renounce a sports team? When is it okay to renounce a sports team? And so someone needed some important feedback for this existential question, and it went like this. It said, Dear Rick, I was hoping you could settle a moral dilemma I am having. I have been a Knicks fan since the early 90s. I think our coach is great, but at what point does it become okay to disown a team when you feel they are no longer headed in the right direction? Can you be considered a fair-weather fan if you root for another team? Very good question. And the columnist responded with these wonderful words. Dear Amory, no, you would not be a fair-weather fan. You wouldn't be any kind of fan. You'd be the kind of hairball that hairballs cough up. You would be lower than the crawl space under a flounder's basement. You can't just bolt on your team because you think it's going to be bad, which the Knicks are. There's no debating that. Your team is like your dog. You cannot just leave it because it's getting a limp and stares at the tennis ball you just threw. You cannot just disown your team because it's going to get beaten like Denny's eggs. In fact... There are only a few officially sanctioned reasons you can abandon your lifelong team for another. There are these and only these. Here they are. Uh, you actually play for that new team. You purchase that new team. Your town's law enforcement permanently banned you from coming within 500 feet of your team's players, staff, or stadium. Your team's home games are no longer televised. Your team folded or left town, or your team changed its uniforms to teal. These are all acceptable reasons to abandon your team. Now, as I read this, I, I, all these talks about renouncing and disowning came to my mind this week because we're looking at a church that is the most loyal church a church that has not renounced Jesus whatsoever. They have a wonderful reputation of sticking with Jesus when times are bad. They have a wonderful reputation of remaining loyal to him in the darkest of times. And yet, as we look at the church of Pergamum, we come across a surprising truth that I want to summarize in a moment and explain for the rest of our time. Here's the central truth, a hard truth, that we have to hear for the church of Pergamon, and it is this, that it is possible to not renounce Jesus but restrict his influence in our lives. It is possible to not renounce Jesus but restrict his influence in our lives. The church throughout the ages has had to wrestle with a fundamental temptation. Will Jesus shape all of our lives or just some of our lives? Will we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to shape every part of our lives or to shape one part of our lives? And so I want you to think about your life for a moment. To what degree are you giving Jesus access to your life? 
To what degree is Jesus shaping the way you manage your time, the way you manage your money, the way you work through conflict, the way you make decisions, the way you think about sexuality? One of the terrifying realities about the spiritual life is that we can be committed to Jesus, committed to the name of Jesus, committed to the person of Jesus, committed to the truths of Jesus, but not have those truths and that person shape the way we live in the world. And it is here where we turn to the church at Pergamum because we have some beautiful and some surprising words. To review what Revelation is about, the gospel writer John uh, is on exile at an island called Patmos. He's on exile for faith in Jesus. And while he's in exile and total isolation, the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself to John. And John gets a revelation of who Jesus is. We see Jesus in blazing glory. We see Jesus with eyes of fire. We see Jesus with just majesty. He is the almighty one, and he wants to let John know some words that he wants him to carry to seven specific churches about their life in him. And so we've, we've talked about the last couple of weeks that the book of Revelation, you can't understand it without seeing the purpose of it. That it has three purposes, this book of Revelation. It's three kinds of literature. It's, it's first of all prophetic literature, which is to say it lets us know what the future holds. But not just what the future holds, it reminds us about who holds the future. Amen. God holds the future. Christ holds the future. It's prophetic Literature. In addition to that, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And that word apocalypse means to unveil, to reveal what was previously hidden. And what we find throughout the book of Revelation is that what was previously hidden is now brought to the light. What we see with our eyes is not all there is to see. That's not the full story. And in the book of Revelation, what we find is we see what's really happening behind the scenes of evil. Where is there true evil in the world? We see the curtain open. We get a glimpse of where evil is. But not only do we get a glimpse of where evil is and the, the, the genesis of evil, what we also find is the hidden nature of the presence of God. Throughout Revelation, we are, we are reminded that even though we cannot see it, God is present. God is active. God is moving. And I want to look at you and encourage you today because some of you came to church today, some of you are watching online, and you're wondering, where is God in my life? Is God near? Is God present? This word today is to be an apocalypse, to let you know that Jesus is present and Jesus is moving and Jesus is powerful and Jesus has not forgotten you and Jesus is present to you right at this very moment. And so be encouraged because our Lord Jesus Christ is alive and he is moving and he's not done with your life or done with your story. Amen. And so the book of Revelation is prophetic literature. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And the book of Revelation, thirdly, is resistance literature. That is to say that there are, there are forces, there are powers, there are principalities, there are evil forces that would seek to have us live in the way of the world system. And so when we read Revelation, we are to resist the power of the evil one. Resist the powers of principalities and powers. Resist the power of the flesh. Resist the power of the sinful world we live in. And so with all of that, Jesus introduces himself once again to this third church, letting them know who he is. Every time Jesus gives words to the church, he, he lets them know who he is so that they could recognize who's the one who's addressing them. And in this case, he uses different language to introduce himself. He says in, at the beginning of the uh, chapter here, this verse, this section of it, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Early in Revelation, the double-edged sword proceeds from the mouth of Jesus. He is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, when we hear these words that Jesus has a sharp, double-edged sword, it doesn't mean that Jesus wants to kill his enemies. That would be totally contrary to the Jesus we've seen in the Gospels. The Jesus who does not kill his enemies, the Jesus who dies for his enemies. 
And so to talk about the double-edged sword proceeding from the mouth of Jesus is not to talk about Jesus killing his enemies, but it is to speak about the judgment of Jesus, that the one who will ultimately judge the world is Jesus Christ. The one who will ultimately judge the church is Jesus Christ. The one who will ultimately judge your life and judge my life is Jesus Christ. And we need to hear these words because it's very easy to fall into very, uh, two very true realities, two temptations, where we believe that we are responsible to judge the world. But we're not responsible to judge the world. Jesus is the one who will judge the world. And so every time the church uh, wants to judge the world, we, we are now usurping Jesus. And, 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 and taking on ourselves his divine prerogative to judge the world. But more than that, it reminds us we are not the ones who are judging the world, but we also remind ourselves that we can allow ourselves often to be destroyed by the judgment of others. We are not to be, allow ourselves to be destroyed by the judgment of others because our judgment ultimately is not by you, it's not by me, it's by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the just and compassionate judge who will judge the world. And so he, this is the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword. And then he begins to continue be, uh, offering words of consolation and words of commendation. He's commending the church here. And he says, I know where you live. I know where you live. And if you just see that straight out, that sounds pretty intimidating. I know where you live. I, I, I know where you live. But when Jesus says, I know where you live, uh, he, he actually explains it some more. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Look how he's been addressing the churches. To the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your affliction and your poverty. To the church at Pergamum, Jesus says, I know where you live. When I have conversations with native New Yorkers who know about New York and who've lived here for a long time, they introduce themselves and they go, oh, where are you from? And I go, oh, I'm from Brooklyn. And they go, oh, that's not what, Park Slope? Where, where, where are we talking about in Brooklyn? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm from East New York, uh, Brooklyn. And, it, and, and, and at that point, you know, eyebrows go to the ceiling and they go, I know where you live. Uh, that's not easy. You live there. When the church in Pergamum introduced themselves and say, where are you from? They go, Pergamum. You could be sure that people go, whoa. That's where Satan lives. You know it's a bad neighborhood when it's known for being the place where Satan has his throne. That's not a good neighborhood. Where is Pergamum? It's the place where Satan has his throne. It's the place of violence. It's the place of deception. It's the place where the evil one has his sway, where Satan has his throne. And so Jesus is reminding the church in Pergamum, I know where you live. I know how difficult it is to live where you're at, to be in the situation where you're at. And I can't help but think that Jesus is looking at some of you today with the harsh realities of your own life and the challenges of the world that you're living in. And Jesus says, out of compassionate knowledge, I know where you live. I know it hasn't been easy. I know life has been hard. I know the workplace has been very discouraging. I know when you go home, there's lots of tension. I know where you live. And what John and Jesus in this Revelation passage is trying to get us to see is that there are spiritual forces at work in the world that we cannot see with our eyes. Spiritual forces we cannot see that we must contend with. That we, just we must remind ourselves. Why? Because if we're not aware of the spiritual forces that are invisible, we will ultimately see our neighbor as the enemy. Which is why Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities. If you don't see that there are powers and principalities and evil forces at work in the world, you, would mis you will mistake your neighbor for the ultimate enemy. But your neighbor's not your ultimate enemy, no matter who they root for. Your neighbor, and, and, and Jesus is letting us know there are forces at work in the world, evil forces that we must be mindful of. 
Now, this is where many Christians fall on various lines. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, talks about this. Screwtape Letters is about uh, an uncle devil giving his nephew demon uh, uh, advice on how to tempt Christians. Everyone should read it. It's a wonderful book. And he lets us know the, the crafty ways of the evil one. But in the beginning of the Screwtape Letters, Lewis talks about the two opposite ways that we think about spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which humans can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the devils themselves, are equally pleased by both errors. In this room, there are people all over the spectrum. Some of, many of us have been so dominated by rationalism, so dominated by empiricism, that if I cannot see it, then it doesn't exist. And so we're on one end of the spectrum where it's not demons, it's not devils, it's, it's just, it's something else, and we do not believe that there is powers at work. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who see demons behind every bush. And so if we're at church and the screen goes out and all that, oh, we bind the devil in the name of Jesus, let's just plug it in. How about we just plug it in, uh, reset the Wi-Fi, we'll be just fine. And so some of us have no category for demonic powers. Others see it behind every bush. And yet what Jesus wants us to know is that there are powers in the world that we must contend with. This church is in, under incredible pressure to assimilate to the surrounding world system, to the surrounding culture. And this is a temptation for every generation of Christ followers. Are we going to look more like Jesus? Or are we going to look more like the surrounding world? Are we going to be marked by love? Or are we going to be marked by lust? Are we going to be marked by generosity? Or are we going to be marked by greed? Are we going to be marked by contentment? Or are we going to be marked by gluttony? Are we going to be marked by kindness or are we going to be marked by hatred? Are we going to be marked by humility or are we going to be marked by pride? Jesus says, you guys are in hostile territory yet. And then here's the word of commendation, the word of encouragement. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Here it is. There was a faithful Christ follower named Antipas who was killed in the name of Jesus, who did not renounce his faith in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I commend you because you did not uh, renounce me, you remain true to my name. And as I read this passage this week, I began to reflect on an important question. Am I a Christian in name only, or am I true to the name of Jesus? Am I a Christian in name only, or am I true to the name of Jesus? It is possible to be a Christian in name only. The United States has often been seen by many as a Christian nation. And yet this so-called Christian nation has also contributed to the genocide of native peoples and slavery and racism and all the rest. Because you can be in name as a Christian and not have the qualities that make up a true Christ follower. It is possible for a church to be a Christian in name only. It is possible for a family to be a Christian in name only. It is possible for a preacher to be a Christian in name only. It's possible for all of our lives to be a Christian in name only. And so the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, you remain 
true to my name, you did not renounce your faith in me. They held fast to him. And there's something beautiful about people who hold fast to the name of Jesus, especially in times of persecution. I'm reminded of one Christian, one famous Christian, a guy by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was, tradition says, a disciple of the Gospel of John who wrote the book of Revelation. And Polycarp was one of the first martyrs of the church, one of the most famous martyrs of the church. And towards the end of his life, he was being persecuted for having faith in Jesus. And we have the testimony of Polycarp's refusal to renounce Jesus. And look at some of the words that Polycarp says. The governor of Rome wanted Polycarp to renounce his faith in Jesus. He said, take an oath and curse your Christ. And Polycarp responded saying this, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The governor said, swear by the divine power of Caesar. And Polycarp said, if you think that I will swear by the divine power of Caesar, and if you pretend that you don't know who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the Christian message, arrange a meeting and give me a hearing. He's ready to do a Bible study. This is amazing. <laughs> the governor says, I have wild animals. I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. Polycarp said, call them in. For we are not allowed to change from something better, that is to being a Christ follower, to something worse. The governor said, well, I'll have you burned alive if you don't change your mind. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that burns for a short time and is soon quenched. You don't know about the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. But why are you waiting? Come do what you will. Oh, this guy's got it going on. Could you imagine? Only thing I can say to all that is, wow. That's the kind of faith I want. I don't know if I have that kind of faith. But that's the kind of faith I want. When you look at Polycarp, when you look at the church in Pergamum, these people have stuck with Jesus, have not renounced him. And this is a great time to close the sermon. A great time to go, worship team, come forward. Let's pray. Amen. A great time for the credits to start rolling. But what we find, if I could stick with that analogy, is there's an after-credit scene <laughs> where it seems like everything's fine, and yet Jesus has words. He just said, I commend you, I commend you. I, you did not renounce me, but I have a few things against Now, wait a second. Not one thing. You know what I'm saying? Okay, one thing. I've been doing one, a few things against Lord, what else do you want from me? I didn't renounce you. I held fast to your name. I mean, can, can we skip this portion of the letter? Why? And listen to what Jesus says. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you hold to those who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And what we find here is what I mentioned at the beginning, that it is possible to not renounce Jesus, but still restrict his influence in our lives. What Jesus does is he looks at the Old Testament to the book of Numbers to this story between a guy named Balak and Balaam. Now, Balaam is this, he's a, a world-renowned sorcerer. He's a world-renowned spiritist. I mean, a world-renowned prophet against the people of God. He's known for his power. He's known for having a, a, a connection to the unseen world. And so one day, Balak who's the king of the Moabites, who's an ancient enemy of the people of God, wants to weaken the people of Israel. He sees how they're getting stronger, and he says, we need to defeat them. I need someone who has a, a power. He's in touch with the spiritual world. Balaam, can you come and 
curse the people of Israel. That way, they'll be weakened and we can defeat them. And so he hires Balaam. He says, how much is it going to cost for me to get you to curse them? They work it out. Balaam comes on the scene and tries to curse the people of Israel. But there's a problem here. Balaam cannot curse what God has already blessed. Some of you will get that on Tuesday. You're going to go, oh, uh, you're going to go, oh. You're going to wake up in the middle of the night and go, mm. <laughs> Balaam cannot curse what God has already blessed. And so he finds himself having a hard time cursing them. He says, it's not working. They're blessed. God's with them. God's for them. I'm sorry. You're not getting a refund. I, I can't do anything. And so you would think this is the end of the story, but they reconvene again. And they realize we cannot defeat them straight out. I cannot curse them straight out. But what we can do is entice them. Slowly get them to embrace our way. Slowly get them to move away from Yahweh into our way of seeing the world gradually move them and so what began to happen is the people began to, of Moab began to invite them to their festivals where they would eat food which was sacrificed to idols they showed them the best looking women and said well what you, you deserve to have a good time what happens in Moab stays at Moab Slowly and slowly, they began to slip into the way of this culture where they no longer looked like the people of God. And now they began to look like the people at Moab. There was, there was this mixture that they allowed themselves to be contaminated by. And next thing you know, they're not living like the people God called them to be. The people in Revelation now are experiencing the same thing. They have not renounced the name of Jesus, but they have restricted the influence of Jesus on their lives. They had faith in Jesus, but they were not aligning major parts of their lives to his will. They believed that Jesus was the only way to heaven, but didn't think that his way was the only way to live on earth. They believed that Jesus was Savior, Rescuer, but did not want to submit to him as Lord. And there's lots of folks, very easy, I, Jesus is my Savior, he rescues me, he forgives me. But is Jesus your Lord? Can Jesus tell you what to do? Can, can you allow yourself to come under the authority of the name of Jesus in every area of your life? Ah, you're getting too religious on me, Rich. You're getting too religious on me. But he forgave me. Amen. And what we find is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, called, this is what you call cheap grace. Cheap grace. Grace that wants the blessings and forgiveness and, and redemption, but grace that doesn't demand anything in my life. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. This church at Pergamum had lots of mixture. And we see lots of mixture in our world. How is it possible that people can identify as Christians and be blatant racists? How is it people that people can, possible that people can pray to Jesus and still pray on the poor? How is it possible that people can confess Jesus as Lord and curse people who don't see everything eye to eye with them politically? There's so much mixture. And if I'm honest with myself, there's mixture in here as well. And mixture in you as well. Every day, you and I are seduced by the culture around us. Will we take our talking points from Jesus? 
Or will we take our talking points from someplace else? Will we define success in the way of Jesus? Or will we define success in the way of the world? Will we negotiate our differences in the way of Jesus? Or will we negotiate our differences in the way of the world? Jesus says, this, you, you renounced me, yes. You didn't renounce me, yes, but now you have slipped into something else. And, and what we learn here is I want to summarize this in just five statements as I've been studying what Jesus says to the church in Pergamon. Five statements, five invitations for us. Five things we must be mindful of as we look at this portion of Scripture. The first is this. What do we learn from this? Number one, that no one is above receiving a word of criticism from Jesus. There's not one person on planet Earth who's above receiving a word of criticism from Jesus. There's no one, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much spiritual authority we have, no matter how many people follow us on social media, no one is above receiving a word of criticism from Jesus. And it's often the case that we so, we so, I so compare my sins to others in such a way that absolves me of feeling really bad about my sins. Jesus, there's just so much over there you need to pay attention to. I'm doing okay over here. I'm not doing that over there. So there's no need to come to me. And yet no one is above receiving a word of criticism from Jesus. This is to form humility in us. That we are all a work in progress. That we never arrive. That we never get to a point where we are done. That we all struggle no matter how old we are. Teenager, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. I'm so glad we have a multi-generational church at New Life. Because I'm reminded in my conversations with folks in their 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s that there's still stuff that's not right in them. That God's still working on them. How nice would it be? 50, bling, we're all good now. 60, we've reached the level. 70, you've unlocked a new status where God does not have to confront you on anything else. How wonderful would that be? And yet to the day that we die, we are under the authority of Jesus and God still has some work to do in our lives. That's the first thing we learn. No one's above receiving. They did, they did not renounce him. And still Jesus had some more. Secondly, no matter how faithful we were in the past, we're all called to the daily work of aligning our longings and appetites to Jesus. I know what it's like to live in the past, especially something I did good in the past, and just stay there. You know, 12 years ago, I, I did the insanity workout, insanity workout, you know, crazy workout. I talk about it like I did it last month. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and I thought to myself, I'm talking to people like, oh, yeah, I did insanity. Absolutely. And, and how long ago? You know, two decades ago, I did insanity. And it's very easy for me to focus so much on the past that I don't give myself to the daily work of aligning my longings and my appetites to Jesus. We can't live off the stuff we did in the past. The prayer meeting we did in the past. The one time we stood up to 3 a.m. in the morning and was praying in the past. Every single day. We must make a decision to align our hearts and our appetites and our longings to Jesus. They renounce, and it's interesting, in the Greek, it's really Jesus is getting at that one moment. You had one moment where you didn't renounce me, but you can't live off of that one moment. It's the ongoing work of aligning our longings to Jesus. Third, we learn here that we can be devoted to Jesus and still be shaped by the way of the world. We can be devoted to him and still be shaped by the way of the world, shaped by the ways of our families of origin, shaped by the fallen ways of our cultures, shaped by the ways of a world system. It is possible that we can be fully devoted to Jesus Christ and yet be shaped by the world around us. One of the more terrifying passages in the Bible is when Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is looking around at his disciples and say, who do people say that I am? And they go, oh, some think you're Elijah, some think you're this person, some think you're that person. And then he looks at his disciples and says, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, ooh, 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 me. And he goes, Peter. And he goes, you, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, whoa. 
flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That's from my Father in heaven. That's wonderful. Two verses later, Jesus says, I got to go to the cross. I got to die. I got to And Peter says, you will never go to the cross. I'll, I'll, you'll never do it. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. He, just a moment ago, he was, the Father gave you that. Two in a New York second. Get behind me, Satan. What does this remind? It reminds me that we can be so, have our souls saved by Jesus and still be caught in a system shaped by Satan. It is possible. It is possible. How is it that some of the worst racism has come in the name of Jesus? How is this possible that we can be devoted to Jesus and be shaped by the way of the world? Fourthly, we must be mindful of the ways we justify our sin. This is a very strong message that Jesus is giving. And I imagine the people of Israel, they're saying, uh, Lord, we're just going to one festival. I, I know the food is sacrificed to idols, but I miss breakfast and lunch. A, a little thing is not going to harm anyone. How, how about a little thing like that? Or, or, or Lord, Lord, don't you know I have, my body has cravings? I, I need, I, I, Lord, what do you expect me to do with all of these cravings? And, 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 they, and they rationalized that be, because they stood for Christ before, they can give themselves a little break. It's like saying, I, I worked so hard. I don't need to pay all my taxes. <laughs> I've had a hard week on the job. You know what? I'll drink as much as I want this weekend. A, a little lie on my resume won't hurt anybody. You know, my rage was necessary to keep my kids in line. I've been single for so long. A one-night stand, that won't hurt anyone. And little by little by little. This is, what, what, this is why Jesus tells his people, be on alert. Stay on guard. The evil one prowls like a lion waiting for someone to devour. Be on guard. Lastly, it's this before we receive. What do we learn from this? That our contradictions and mixture are to lead to a life of repentance. Lead to a life of repentance. It's very easy for us to look at our lives and say, listen, God just, listen, God knows who I am. God knows my struggles. This is just who I am. Take it or leave it. I'm, I'm all mixture. I'm all mixture. God, accept me as I am. And I get it. But for Jesus to recognize the mixture that's inside of us doesn't lead to take me as I am. The, to recognize the mixture is to lead to repentance. He says, there's a lot of mixture going on. Therefore, repent. All of this is to ground us in our need for the mercy of God, in our need for the grace of God, in our need for God's salvation. And so back to the question I said at the beginning, does Jesus have all of you or just some of you? Are we aligning all of our lives and ourselves to Jesus? Or have we kept some things on the side for ourselves? And for all of these things, Jesus says, repent. Listen, if Jesus tells the church at Pergamum to repent, none of us is exempt from repenting. If Jesus told the church who didn't renounce him, you need to repent, I'm not exempt from repenting. You're not exempt from repenting. We all have some work to do, and here's the beauty of it all. With all the difficulty, and let's have the worship team come forward, with all the difficulty and the hard, hard words that Jesus offers, we are reminded about the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of the gospel that we are reminded of. In the gospels, in the book of Revelation, we are reminded of the radical loyalty that Jesus has to you. That Jesus has every week, if he wanted to, 
he could renounce you. Whenever we have our prayers of confession, whenever we pray and we gather on Sunday and one of our pastors say, think about the previous week. Where did you miss it? And I don't know about you, but I think about the previous week and I go, oh, I missed it. I, I missed it this week. Every single week, Jesus could say, you know what? You didn't pray this week. You didn't read your Bible this week. Screamed at the kids. Did all the... And Jesus looks at us Mercy, grace, forgiveness. He doesn't renounce us and invites us now by receiving that unconditional mercy and grace of God to live in such a way that aligns our lives to him. And look at the promise that Jesus offers. Jesus says to the one who is victorious, and I want to focus on the latter part of it, he says, I have a new name for you. I have a name for you that you're going to discover when you see it, that no one else will know it. And that speaks of the specificity of God's relationship to you, the tenderness of God's relationship to you, the unique relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus doesn't love you as some generic group of people. He loves you personally. He loves you uniquely. And hear that he has a name for you that you will discover at some point in the future. This is the love, the mercy of God, that even though we have our ups and downs, his love remains steadfast. And so in light of all that, we are called to repent. Let's do that right now. Let me invite you to close your eyes. To repent is not simply to say, I'm sorry. To repent is to courageously look at the ways we are being shaped by forces other than Jesus and by God's grace to turn back to him. Where are the areas of your life where Jesus, you haven't allowed Jesus to get a hold of? Where have you said, Jesus, you can have this? but not this. This is mine. And where do you need courage and trust to begin to say, Lord, you can have this as well. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love, for your steadfast faithfulness to us, for your love which is better than life. And now we come to the table of communion, the table of love and mercy and compassion. May the meal that we enjoy here shape our hearts, our longings, our desires. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we offer our entire selves to you. For you gave your entire self for us pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's all stand together. When we come to the Lord's table, we come not in our name, we come in the name of Jesus. We don't come in our works, we come in the work of Jesus. We don't come in the righteousness, our own righteousness, we come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so before we come to the table. Let's pray this prayer of confession that we have on on the screen together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault. In thought, in word, and deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. As the people of God, forgiven by the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all receive together. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns as the people of God rescued by the poured out blood of our Lord Jesus Christ let's all receive together Lord, in coming to the table, we are reminded that you gave all of yourself for us, not holding anything back. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we do the same to you. We sing to you now words of praise and worship. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. It's in Christ's name we sing. Amen. Let's sing together.
God for God's faithfulness. Amen. The God who remains faithful to us. Wow. Amen. Let's have our prayer team come to my right. Church at Pergamum, they lived in the place where Satan has his throne. That's heavy. And some of you today have felt in a similar way that's where you've been living some of you have been living in a place where it's been very difficult the level of pain the level of division it just feels like Satan's in your neighborhood it feels like Satan has his throne at your job Satan has his throne in this season of your life it just feels like you're coming against some heavy stuff and one of the reasons we end with prayer is because we want to be reminded that whatever God has blessed the enemy cannot curse that God is for you amen that God is with you and that you can stand firm in the middle of the storm in the middle of the battle in the middle of the war and so our prayer team is here for whatever needs you have to encourage you to speak life and words into you and so don't hesitate after our closing a blessing to just come forward for those of you watching online and here maybe you've been coming to new life but you've never said yes to Jesus Christ maybe you've given him some of your life but you're at a place where you're saying, I'm ready to surrender it all, to follow him. Not just to have him as Savior, but have him as Lord and to really follow Jesus. And if there's something resonating in your heart today, that just might be the Holy Spirit saying, surrender to Jesus. Give your life to him. Surrender every aspect of your life to his love, to his ways, to the kingdom of God. And you can come up for prayer. You can also... Uh, text the phrase yes to Jesus to that number on the screen 718-424-0122 and one of our pastors would love to follow up with you and help you take your next step in the spiritual life for those of you watching online we have a sermon discussion time so you can click on the link on the screen 
and one of our pastors will be leading a 30-minute discussion on what we've heard today. But as we close our gathering, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If you're new to our church, we end every gathering like this. Why? Because the world is so filled with cursing. We want to be reminded that blessing is on us. Amen. I want to bless you to remind you that God's hand is on your life, that God is with you, that God is for you. And when the curses of the evil one begin to now saturate your thinking, may you be reminded, no, no, I'm blessed. God is with me. Christ is for me. And may you push back the powers of the evil one around you. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Aligning your life to the way of Jesus, to the person of Jesus. And may you experience joy and life and abundance and peace, knowing that God has a new name for you. A new name for you. May that truth, may that love hold you and strengthen you this week. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. amen. Grace and peace to you all.